0: A thousand miles up the Nile, Section 69. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A thousand miles up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards, Chapter 22, Abidus and Cairo, Part Three. The Maled and Nabi, or Festival of the Birth of the Prophet, was being held at this time in a tract of waste ground along the road to Old Cairo. Here, in some twenty or thirty large open tents, ranged in a circle, there were readings of the Koran and meetings of dervishes going on by day and night, without intermission, for nearly a fortnight. After dark, when the tents were all ablaze with lighted chandeliers, and the dervishes were howling and leaping, and fireworks were being let off from an illuminated platform in the middle of the area, the scene was extraordinary. All Cairo used to be there, on or in carriages, between eight o'clock and midnight every evening, the veiled ladies of the Khedives harem in their miniature roms being foremost among the spectators. The Malid and Nebi ends with the performance of the dosha, when the sheikh of the Sadia dervishes rides over a road of prostrate fanatics. L and the writer witness this sight from the tent of the governor of Cairo. Drunk with opium, fasting and praying, rolling their heads and foaming at the mouth, some hundreds of wretched creatures lay down in the road, packed as close as paving-stones, and were walked and ridden over before our eyes. The standard-bearers came first, then a priest reading the Koran aloud, then the sheikh on his white Arab, supported on either side by barefooted priests. The beautiful horse trod with evident reluctance, and as lightly and swiftly as possible, on the human causeway under his hoofs, The Mohammedans aver that no one is injured, or even bruised, on this holy occasion, but I saw some men carried away in convulsions, who looked as if they would never walk again. It is difficult to say but a few inadequate words of a place about which an instructive volume might be written, yet to pass the Bulak Museum in silence is impossible.' This famous collection is due, in the first instance, to the liberality of the late Khedive and the labours of Mariette. With the exception of Mehemet Ali, who excavated the temple of Dendera, no previous viceroy of Egypt had ever interested himself in the archaeology of the country. Those who cared for such rubbish as encumbered the soil or lay hidden beneath the sands of the desert were free to take it and no favour was more frequently asked or more readily granted than permission to dig for antiquas. Hence the Egyptian wealth of our museums. Hence the numerous private collections dispersed throughout Europe. Ishmael Pasha, however, put an end to that wholesale pillage, and for the first time since ever mummy was sold for balsam or for bric-a-brac, it became illegal to export antiquities. Thus, for the first time, Egypt began to possess a national collection. Youngest of great museums, the Boulot collection is the wealthiest in the world in portrait statues of private individuals, in funerary tablets, in amulets, and in personal relics of the ancient inhabitants of the Nile Valley. It is necessarily less rich in such colossal statues as fill the great galleries of the British Museum, the Turin Museum, and the Louvre. These, being above ground and comparatively few in number, were for the most part seized upon long since— and transported to Europe. The Bulak statues are the product of the tombs. The famous wooden sheikh, about which so much has been written, the magnificent Diorite statue of Kafra, or Kephron, the builder of the Second Pyramid, the two marvellous sitting statues of Prince Rahotep and Princess Neferit are all portraits, and, like their tombs, were executed during the lifetime of the persons represented crossing the threshold of the great vestibule one is surrounded by a host of these extraordinary figures erect colored clothed all but in motion it is like entering the crowded anteroom of a royal palace in the time of the ancient empire the greater number of the bulak portrait statues are sculptured in what is called the hieratic attitude that is with the left arm down and pressed close to the body the left hand holding a roll of papyrus, the right leg advanced, and the right hand raised, as grasping the walking-staff. It occurred to me that there might be a deeper significance than at first sight appears in this conventional attitude, and that it perhaps suggests the moment of resurrection, when the deceased, holding fast by his copy of the Book of the Dead, walks forth from his tomb into the light of life eternal." Of all the statues here, one may say, indeed, of all known Egyptian statues, those of Prince Rahotep and Princess Nefert are the most wonderful. They are probably the oldest portrait statues in the world. They come from a tomb of the Third Dynasty, and are contemporary with Snefru, a king who reigned before the time of Khufu and Kafra. That is to say, these people who sit before us side by side, Coloured to the life, fresh and glowing as the day when they gave the artist his last sitting, lived at a time when the great pyramids of Giza were not yet built, and at a date which is variously calculated as from about 6,300 to 4,000 years before the present day. The princess wears her hair precisely as it is still worn in Nubia, and her necklace of kabochan drops is of a pattern much favoured by the modern Gwazi the eyes of both statues are inserted the eyeball which is set in an eyelid of bronze is made of opaque white quartz with an iris of rock crystal enclosing a pupil of some kind of brilliant metal this treatment of which there are one or two other instances extant gives to the eyes a look of intelligence that is almost appalling there is a play of light within the orb and apparently a living moisture upon the surface which has never been approached by the most skilfully made glass eyes of modern manufacture of the jewels of Queen Ahotep, of the superb series of engraved scarabi of the rings, amulets, and toilette ornaments of the vases in bronze, silver, alabaster, and porcelain of the libation tables, the woven stuffs, the terracottas, the artists' models, the lamps, the silver boats, the weapons, the papyri. THE THOUSAND AND ONE CURIOUS PERSONAL RELICS AND ARTICLES OF DOMESTIC USE WHICH ARE BROUGHT TOGETHER WITHIN THESE WALLS, I HAVE NO SPACE TO TELL. EXCEPT THE COLLECTION OF POMPEIAN RELICS IN NAPLES, THERE IS NOTHING ELSEWHERE TO COMPARE WITH THE COLLECTION AT BOULOCK, AND THE VILLAS OF Pompeii HAVE YIELDED NO SUCH GEMS AND JEWELS AS THE TOMBS OF ANCIENT EGYPT. IT IS NOT TOO MUCH TO SAY THAT IF THESE DEAD AND MUMMIED PEOPLE COULD COME BACK TO EARTH, The priest would here find all the gods of his pantheon, the king his scepter, the queen her crown jewels, the scribe his palette, the soldier his arms, the workman his tools, the barber his razors, the husbandman his hoe, the housewife her broom, the child his toys, the beauty her combs and coal-bottles and mirrors. The furniture of the house is here, as well as the furniture of the tomb." Here, too, is the broken sistrum buried with the dead in token of the grief of the living. Waiting the construction of a more suitable edifice, the present building gives temporary shelter to the collection. In the meanwhile, if there was nothing else to tempt the traveller to Cairo, the Bulac Museum would alone be worth the journey from Europe. The first excursion one makes on returning to Cairo, the last one one makes before leaving, is to Giza. It is impossible to get tired of the pyramids. Here L and the writer spent their last day with the happy couple. We left Cairo early, and met all the market-folk coming in from the country, donkeys and carts laden with green stuff, and veiled women with towers of baskets on their heads. The Khedive's new palace was swarming already with masons, and files of camels were bringing limestone blocks for the builders." Next comes the open corn plain, part yellow, part green, the long straight road bordered with acacias, beyond all the desert platform, and the pyramids, half in light, half in grayish-green shadow, against the horizon. I could never understand why it is that the second pyramid, though it is smaller and farther off, looks from this point of view bigger than the first. Farther on, the brown fellahin, knee-deep in purple blossom, are cutting the clover the camels carry it away. The goats and buffaloes feed in the clearings. Then comes the half-way tomb nestled in greenery, where men and horses stay to drink, and soon we are skirting a great backwater which reflects the pyramids like a mirror. Villages, shadoofs, herds and flocks, tracts of palms, corn flats, and spaces of rich dark fallow now succeed each other, and then once more comes the sandy slope and the cavernous ridge of ancient yellow rock, and the Great Pyramid with its shadow side towards us, darkening the light of day. Neither L nor the rider went inside the Great Pyramid. The idle man did so this day, and L's maid on another occasion, and both reported of the place as so stifling within, so foul under foot, and so fatiguing, that somehow we each time put it off, and ended by missing it. The ascent is extremely easy. Rugged and huge as are the blocks, there is scarcely one upon which it is not possible to find a half-way rest for the toe of one's boot, so as to divide the distance. With the help of three Arabs, nothing can well be less fatiguing. As for the men, they are helpful and courteous, and as clever as possible, and coax one on from block to block in all the languages of Europe. "'Pazienza, signora!' "'Allez doucement! All serene! We half-way now!' dem halvenweg frulein ne vous pressez pas mademoiselle ci va sano valentano six step more and echo la cima you should add the other half of the proverb amici said i ci va forte va alla morte my arabs had never heard this before and were delighted with it they repeated it again and again and committed it to memory with great satisfaction I asked them why they did not cut steps in the blocks, so as to make the ascent easier for ladies. The answer was ready and honest. "'No, no, mademoiselle. Arab very stupid to do that. If Arab makes good steps, Hawaji goes up alone. No more want Arab man to help him up, and Arab man earn no more dollars.' They offered to sing Yankee Doodle when we reached the top, then, finding we were English, shouted, God save the Queen, and told us that the Prince of Wales had given forty pounds to the Pyramid Arabs when he came here with the Princess two years before, which, however, we took the liberty to doubt. The space on the top of the Great Pyramid is said to be thirty feet square. It is not, as I had expected, a level platform. Some blocks of the next tier remain, and two or three of the tier next above that so making pleasant seats and shady corners. What struck us most on reaching the top was the startling nearness to all appearance of the second pyramid. It seemed to rise up beside us like a mountain, yet so close that I fancied I could almost touch it by putting out my hand. Every detail of the surface, every crack and party-colored stain in the shining stucco that yet clings about the apex, was distinctly visible. The view from this place is immense. THE COUNTRY IS SO FLAT, THE ATMOSPHERE SO CLEAR, THE STANDPOINT SO ISOLATED, THAT ONE REALLY SEES MORE AND SEES FARTHER THAN FROM MANY A MOUNTAIN SUMMIT OF TEN OR TWELVE THOUSAND FEET. THE GROUND LIES, AS IT WERE, IMMEDIATELY UNDER ONE, AND THE GREAT NECROPOLIS IS SEEN AS IN A GROUND PLAN. THE EFFECT MUST, I IMAGINE, BE EXACTLY LIKE THE EFFECT OF A LANDSCAPE SEEN FROM A BALLOON. Without ascending the pyramid, it is certainly not possible to form a clear notion of the way in which this great burial-field is laid out. We see from this point how each royal pyramid is surrounded by its quadrangle of lesser tombs, some in the form of small pyramids, others partly rock-cut, partly built of massive slabs, like the roofing-stones of the temples. We see how Khufu and Kafra and Menkara lay, each under his mountain of stone, with his family and his nobles, around him. We see the great causeway which moved Herodotus to such wonder, and along which the giant stones were brought. Recognizing how clearly the place is a great cemetery, one marvels at the ingenious theories which turn the pyramids into astronomical observatories and obtruse standards of measurement. They are the grandest graves in all the world, and they are nothing more." A little way to the southward, from the midst of a sandy hollow, rises the head of the Sphinx. Older than the pyramids, older than history, the monster lies couchant like a watchdog, looking ever to the east, as if for some dawn that has not yet risen. A depression in the sand, close by, marks the site of that strange monument, miscalled the Temple of the Sphinx. Farther away to the west, on the highest slope of this part of the desert platform, stands the pyramid of Menkara, my Serenus. It has lost but five feet of its original height, and from this distance it looks quite perfect. Such, set in a waste of desert, are the main objects, and the nearest objects on which our eyes first rest. As a whole the view is more long than wide, being bounded to the westward by the Libyan range, and to the eastward by the Makatam hills. At the foot of those yellow hills, divided from us by the cultivated plain across which we have just driven, lies Cairo, all glittering domes half seen through a sunlit haze. Overlooking the fairy city stands the mosque of the citadel, its mast-like minarets piercing the clearer atmosphere. Far to the northward, traversing reach after reach of shadowy palm groves, the eye loses itself in the dim and fertile distances of the delta. To the west and south all is desert. It begins here at our feet, a rolling wilderness of valleys and slopes and rivers and seas of sand, broken here and there by abrupt ridges of rock and mounds of ruined masonry and open graves. A silver line skirts the edge of this dead world and vanishes southward in the sun-mist that shimmers on the farthest horizon. To the left of that silver line we see the quarried cliffs of Tura, marble white, opposite Tura, the plumy palms of memphis on the desert platform above clear though faint the pyramids of Abusir and saqqara and dashur every stage of the pyramid of osinefus banded in light and shade is plain to see so is the dome-like summit of the great pyramid of dashur even the brick ruin beside it which we took for a black rock as we went up the river and which looks like a black rock still is perfectly visible. Farthest of them all, showing pale and sharp amid the palpitating blaze of noon, stands, like an unfinished tower of Babel, the pyramid of Medom. It is in this direction that our eyes turn oftenest, to the measureless desert in its mystery of light and silence, to the Nile where it gleams out again and again, till it melts at last into that faint, far distance beyond which lie Thebes and Philae and Abu Simbel. Read by Dr. Heather and By, Carrollton, Georgia, June 2007. End of section 69.